Welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. As a digital extension of the Ackerman Center, our goal is to teach the past so we can change the future. In doing so, we address issues related to the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights studies from diverse perspectives. In this special episode, Belofsky Fellow Katie Fisher and Dr. Niels Romer take a walking tour of the Dachau concentration camp in southern Germany. This auditory experience captures the sound of the present-day landscape with its birdsong and tourist chatter and is layered with historical context and references provided by Dr. Romer. Well, hi, Dr. Romer. I'm glad to be on here with you today. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are and, and what you're doing? Of course. Thank you. Glad to join you. I'm just on the outside of Munich. It's about uh, a 25-minute train ride away to the northwest at the concentration um, memorial and museum site of Dachau. And I'm just on the outside of it right now, about to enter the, the vast space that still has remained here and serves today. One of the major attractions as to why people, amongst many other reasons, come to Munich. So it's a very busy day out here with lots of groups from all over the world. Um, as we are moving around, you may pick up the background, some Italian or some Polish or some German or some English from any of the big groups that are kind of coming through. But I'm really thrilled to be able to talk a little bit about the camp. The camp is, you know, in comparison to many of the others, one might think one of the smaller ones, but in many ways it's a very significant one for a couple of reasons. It's the first camp. It was created in 1933. It's one of the last major camps to be liberated, actually liberated by the Americans in April 1945, and therefore much of what Americans early on learned about the Holocaust and the Third Reich was based around the kind of information that came from the liberation of camps like Dachau. But Dachau is really interesting also in many other ways because it served as a training grounds for all guards who were eventually deployed elsewhere. So virtually all of the guards that became renowned and then famous later on at some point or another had spent some time in Dachau where they got their training. So that in many ways, therefore, this camp and its guards are not just simply one part um, of, a, of a unique story of the Holocaust, but are really related and connected to the bigger part. You know, if we just want to talk about one, an unfamous one of the many who spent some time here, Rudolf Hess, later commander of Auschwitz. That all had to do with the fact that the very training system and the way camps were run was created here in Dachau by a guy called Theodor Eike, and this system was then kind of applied to subsequently all other camps. The camp itself is in a residential area on one of the borders. You have a couple of nice houses. Otherwise, it's surrounded by lots of trees, um, birds. So all those sounds together make the experience of visiting the camp. Right at the beginning, as one enters the camp, there's a recognition in honor of the 42nd Rainbow Division and other U.S. 7th Army Liberators of Dachau Concentration Camp, April 29, 1945, who liberated the camp. I'm now making my way through the often seen and also um, found side sign as I entered Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free, 
which also adorns the entrance of this particular camp. The camp itself, just to give a little bit of history maybe, uh, was created in 1933. It served initially for the imprisonment particularly of political opponents, communists, socialists, members of the trade unions and the likes. It was initially at a smaller scale, but then over time its purpose really radically changed and it was massively expanded 36 to 37, so that today the compound forms a perfect, that's what I'm looking at now, perfect rectangular with 32 barracks in perfect symmetry aligned alongside each other. We're initially set up to host about 200 people each. By the time the Americans liberated these camps, there were about 2,000 to a barrack. All in all, it's believed that about 200,000 prisoners went through this camp with the highest rates of people dying toward the end. But it's a vast rectangular space. You're struck by the perfect symmetry. And there you very quickly get an understanding that there's a sense of symmetry and power that equate here, that this kind of structure was designed to allow perfect control of the prisoners. So it's not just rectangular, the barracks are not just perfectly aligned, but towers surround them. On, on any given morning and evening, all prisoners had to come out for a roll call and stand here endlessly, sometimes in the heat, sometimes in the cold, not simply for the purpose of being counted, but first of all, to be felt who was in charge of the space. As we're walking now toward the end, um, where the interrogation spaces and prisoner spaces were, maybe just fill in some more gaps. Well, initially in the smaller format, the camp really served mainly for political opponents, from 37 onwards it becomes increasingly clear that those that are imprisoned are now also increasingly drawn from minorities that are also becoming increasingly persecuted in the Third Reich. And amongst them are religious opponents, religious minorities, Jehovah's Witnesses, gay, lesbians, but also an increasing number of Jews large number of Jews is incarcerated and sent to Dachau in the aftermath of Kristallnacht, but then most of them are again released in the aftermath once they secured in particular proof of their ability to leave Nazi Germany. There's at the end kind of endless row of rooms that served as a prison for inter interrogation also for torture, for punishment, for any kind of forms of wrongdoings, alleged wrongdoings in this compound. You know, what we see nowadays will be in a moment in the inside of it. But what you could see is how power and torture was here organized in equally sized little chambers, some of them subdivided by three, so the prisoners were forced to stand up in them you know, not big enough to lie down, uh, but really having to stand. Others were totally darkened to deprive the prisoners of any lights. Others had various torture tools attached. Um, so it's the kind of 
sense of this camp being, first of all, in its earlier stages, one might say up until 39, roughly, a camp of prisoners uh, of a totalitarian state before the outbreak of the war. Once the war breaks out, the prisoner population quickly changes and brings in more prisoners of war, while Jews in significant numbers particularly come to at the end of the war in 44-45. But we'll get back to that in a little bit. I'm going to enter now this building. Each one of the rooms is filled with a smaller kind of displays that explain a certain aspect. This introduces you right away into the SS and the bunkers. Some members of the SS were especially remembered by the prisoners for the cruelty. Some of them are kind of called out here with their individual biographies and with their whereabouts. Dachau is famous also for a trial that the Americans conducted right after the liberation. And so some of these guards eventually found their justice in those trials. I'm looking now at a hallway where there are roughly on the one side, uh, I'd say about 20 rooms, each so a total of 40 that go off to the left and to the right. And each one of them gives you a sense of how these spaces were controlled. They have kind of small windows from the outside that allow you to look in and to kind of control the prisoners. Cells themselves are not adorned, are very kind of quote-unquote kept in its original state as much as it was possible without kind of doing any larger maintenance. What is the building made out of? Is it brick? Is it concrete? It's um, made out of brick, but then covered up by um, plaster, you know, to look even. So it looks pretty unassuming from the outside. It kind of has these various functions also, the interrogation, the actual prison cells, uh, here to, interestingly enough, this is very much the site of the power of torture and interrogation, which means by itself it reproduces really the organs, so to speak, of the SS that governed here, rather than giving us a view of uh, what happened to the prisoners. If prisoners surface here, they're largely surfaced through the quote-unquote official photos. Exception to the rules is here one smaller room with some testimonies that one can listen to in German and English and French and Italian and Spanish and Czech, Polish, Russian and Hebrew. Uh, largely, this is really, so to speak, about the power of the perpetrators. Um, Highlighted are sometimes individuals who later came to fame, like Georg Elsner, who famously tried to assassinate Hitler here in Munich in 1939, in November after the breakout of the war, ended up here. This space is very symmetrical again, very momentous, monotonous, and that's you know all there to allow really this kind of display of power and authority. I'm going to leave it now again. And step outside into the sun. So in general, the space is very exposed. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the interesting thing when you come to it that, you know, you hop on the on one of the local trains in Munich, you ride it 25 minutes, and then you come to a small suburb of, of sorts. It's called Dachau, with a small center, and you just go on a bus, and it just takes you right here. So this is not removed or hidden or uh, any of this. This would have been very noticeable and visible to people right from the beginning, and then more so as the war dragged on, because by 43, 44 in particular, Dachau, just like any other major camps, becomes the center of a vast system of satellite camps. So it is then the center, you know, of larger number of, of camps throughout the kind of Bavaria or the wider Munich region, most of the additional subcamps that were created were created in order to serve the war effort, meaning small factories and sorts where some part or another was uh, fabricated that served in the war. But that also required a certain degree of back and forth between the different camps. I think you may hear some birds in the background here too. I'm again moving through the major centerpiece serve for roll call and it's a space that would have increasingly become more and more populated as the prisoner population grew steadily more and more toward the end of the war. But interestingly enough, just as it was with many other camps, Dachau gets larger and larger the longer the war and the Holocaust drags on. And that brings also the largest Jewish population to Dachau than it ever did. Most of them come from Eastern Europe, but also from a good number of other places. And the Nazis are very methodical toward the end of the war. They're emptying these very smaller satellite camps that I talked already about and bring the prisoners to the main camp and then tried uh, very much to secure the control over these prisoners by forcing them onto these so-called death marches. And so one of these infamous ones puts thousands of prisoners still in April on the road with the goal of reaching Austria. And in many ways, these ongoing death marches that had commenced in 44 from Eastern Europe, from Poland onwards in particular, are a kind of continuation of the Holocaust, but by other means, but they are indicative really of how the Third Reich in many ways anticipates the loss of certain territories, in particular in the East, but still seems to presuppose that it's going to continue to exist and therefore wants to continue to have control over these prisoners in the least also in order to use them as slave labor. So throughout the Third Reich, even in January 1945, Third Reich still controls around 700,000 prisoners in its various camps. And a good number of them exist here in Dachau. By the time the Americans come in April, the total population is still over 60,000 that they're liberating. So quite sizable. So you're saying in the months leading up to April 1945, they had brought prisoners from other camps to Dachau, which is in Germany proper, 
And then in anticipating that they wouldn't be holding that land anymore, they were going to take this up again in Austria? Yeah, this was one of, you know, there are various scenarios for Dachau and other places. Some documents suggest that the leaders of the Third Reich were adamant about not wanting these prisoners to fall into the hands of the Allies, which either meant that they were planning possibly to kill everyone. And there's some documents that suggest that the plans to use the German Air Force just to essentially kill the entire population of the camp or follow into the other um, plan, and that was to evacuate the camps like they had done with Auschwitz and other camps before in response to the advancing allies. And so now, once again, there's this idea that the Americans may be closing in on Bavaria, but that there's still maybe an open route toward Austria, and that Austria may indeed end up being the last kind of retreat of sorts for some of the Nazi leaders and some of their military. That's at least what, what some of them believe, and their action kind of seemed to illustrate that. Why else would, would you put prisoners on one of these marches that late in the war? But for many other reasons, everything is obviously already lost. There's these few days between the Allied forces are advancing and then to be sort of sent out on a death march and a few days later dock out to be liberated. The line between life and death is so thin. You know, uh, Martin Gilbert said that many years ago, that these last couple of months that in our minds are already associated with liberation or the defeat of the Third Reich coincided for many victims still with harassment, persecution, as well as with their death. So there's a one of the exhibits here, they have this place about the death rates the documented death rates in the camp. And they're highest toward the end, November, December, January, February. So from 44 to 45, you see far higher death numbers than you ever did. At the period closest to the time of, of liberation, but if you want to put it that way, also the time that is most dangerous, statistically speaking, as far as your possibility of dying here is concerned. Now I'm going to go onward to the other end of the camp, or the compound. And this is, you know, where I walk alongside these barracks that were built by prisoners and served the enlargement of the camp. And then in the middle of vast open space that is nowadays adorned by some trees left and right. And then on the perimeter, you would have had a barbed wire, but you would have also had prior to it what was called the neutral space to which Sometimes prisoners were chased in an effort to make them run into the electric barbed wires. So here's one of the barracks that, however, is not an original any longer, but it was one that was rebuilt in 1965. I mean, we have to remember when the Nazis set up these camps, they didn't necessarily build the barracks to last hundreds of years or tens of years. And so sometimes what we're looking at are really not any longer the originals, but rather serve illustrative purposes as it does in this case. But I walk a little bit quietly through this now. This was a school group. He just uh, was 
one of the kids was just giving a talk about Theodor Eike, the very man who introduced this system of controlling and running camps. Let's see who else we can listen to here. The smaller groups now ahead of me, families. Exit this now again. sound pick up a little bit of wind. These barracks wouldn't have been heated or air conditioned. A prisoner in one of these barracks would have experienced that weather in a very physical way. It would have been unbearable. I mean, today it's a summer day, it's blue sky. There would have been no protection from the heat whatsoever. You put that together with the total overcrowding of, of those spaces. I think I said earlier that they were designed to hold 200, but by the end, of the war they held up to 2,000. So in terms of the heat, this would have been impossible. And then equally in terms of the cold during the winter, that would have been unbearable because the grounds upon which they were erected, they were not insulated to protect you from the cold from the grounds, but there's just simple stones and concrete through which everything would have come up. Those barracks would not have provided you with any kind of great deal of protection from the changing seasons around here, which, you know, in Bavaria, they can be quite severe. Both the summers can be quite warm, and then the winters could be also really, really cold. This is also on the, on my other side, there were bags that were specifically dedicated also to medical experiments of prisoners. So Dachau, amongst many things, becomes notorious also for to be known for these medical experiments that were conducted upon prisoners. Keep now walking a little bit more. What is very airy is, with the exception of this one reconstructed barrack, all the other barracks don't exist any longer, and so you just have these empty spaces that have this kind of surrounding shape still, the concrete in the ground, and then just simple stones that fill them out. But it's just a gigantic empty space, in other words. Head on is now um, this church-like memorial space with a big cross and a giant bell in front of it. To our right then we have the slightly smaller but also really significant marker for the Jewish remembrance of the victims of the Holocaust here. Something that the camp was not as such known, but it's roughly calculated that in the kind of tail end of about 44 to 45 Roughly a little more than 40,000 Jewish prisoners at some point or another uh, were in this camp. So it's not insignificant in terms of the overall numbers for the history of this camp. So it has thereby prisoners of war, Jewish victims, political opponents, Joseph's witnesses. It has a whole kind of range of victims of the Holocaust that ought to be remembered. Does the camp have a memorial to gay, lesbian, bisexual, or trans victims of Holocaust? They are named, but there's not a dedicated space here that I could see. Um, you know, what you have here is really the big church one. Um, then you have the uh, one now that I'm standing in front with the menorah, which quotes from the Bible. 
and then behind it you have a wider memorial space. Now, it's not actually a memorial space, but it's dedicated to the Camelite order of the church. It's actually the space that used to be occupied by the, partly by the SS, where they had, like for their own recreational purposes, a bit of a garden and other things. But that nowadays is populated by the Carmelite Orden. And then you have further on the other side, a uh, memorial space dedicated to the Russian victims. So you have a couple of other inscriptions of very specific victim groups that are, so to speak, named and acknowledged here. One of the you know, things that I respectively have always emphasized is this rectangular space that encloses everything. But it actually doesn't enclose everything that's significant. If you look at a map, you realize that there's something that is on the, so to speak, upper left side, slightly on the outside of this rectangular space that is really significant. I'm trying to get us there now. I don't know, Katie, if you're looking at a map, if you can tell already where I'm taking us. Yes, I am looking at a map. And the first thing I notice is the increase in trees around this location that you're going to. Yes. So this is, you know, significant for many reasons, the space that we're approaching. This is one of the spaces that the American forces also came upon. This is one of the places where many of the corpses were just laying out um, in one of the rooms. They had come across them already on the outside of the camp where they were just lying around. But this is another one of the spaces. But it's also, and there's a, you know, a little bit of historical debate about some of the parts that we're going to encounter in a moment, what exactly had happened there. So what is clear is that there's a, it's a space where eventually also the ashes of, of some of the victims were scattered. It serves therefore as a wider memorial space, so that's number one. But then secondly, if you look at maps, there's this inscription that it was a shooting space for the SS, where some of the mass killings took place of victims. And so for that reason, it has a certain significance. But then it's also significant insofar as that's where the crematoriums are. Really outside of this core perimeter, which kind of tells you something also maybe that this was created a little bit later. It's one of the later architectural changes to the camp but also maybe for the purpose of keeping it a little bit away from the main purpose of the camp. And we're now entering the former crematorium area, as well as the graves of ashes and execution sites. There's on our right side, bigger memorial stone with the inscription crematorium, and then the German inscription, remember how we died here. In German it says, Denk daran, wir hier starben. And it just passed by the bigger tourist group again. So now we're, from a historical perspective, we're entering a really gruesome, but also a really interesting space. So for starters, it's again one of these rectangular buildings. It's red brick stones. It's far smaller than the other buildings that we have entered. Kind of opens up from both ends in different ways. 
on its right side. On the outside is a space dedicated for laying down of dead bodies. The space furthest to the left are like essentially shower spaces for disinfection. So therefore, the idea presumably is that on the one side, coming from the right side, people bodies would have been moved in of people who had already been killed. And then from the left side, people were moved into these spaces who were still alive. I'm going to walk us now quietly through this. I'm going to talk a little bit more quietly. There are lots of groups in this, because this is one of the most gruesome places on this whole memorial site. I'm standing now on the far right, what was called the death chamber. This room was used to store the corpses that were brought from prisoners came to be cremated. And then if I move further from the right, not to the left, get to the next major building where the crematoriums are four big ovens dedicated to the burning of the corpses. Each of the four furnaces could cremate two to three corpses at once. The ovens were connected to the chimney and underground candles. So this is a fairly elaborate construction that serves the erasure really of any remnants of, of the bodies that instead of being buried somewhere are just burned, turned into ashes. There are individual inscriptions here in this space. One of them is dedicated in particular to four young women officers of the British forces who were attached to special operations and were brutally murdered and then eventually cremated here and the names are listed. Now we, so to speak, have left the right side of the building and now we're moving into the left side of the building. And here again, the first room that we're entering is called uh, Death Chamber 1. In this case, this is where the dead were to be brought before they were cremated, but now coming from the left side. Remember, we had entered already a death chamber, death chamber two from the right side, but now we're respectively in the next one. If we move from this one further to our left, then we get to the actual gas chambers. That's what I'm entering right now. This particular gas chamber had a capacity of holding up to 150 people at a time. People who ended up being killed here would have been moved in from the space that I enter now, which comes from the disinfection spaces, then a room dedicated for them to undress until they would come to this space. And the, uh, it's a steel door on either side. And on top of it, it says Brausebad, um, kind of misleading as if um, it was a space dedicated just to showers. So this was a potential of mass murder. And this is now where it gets really interesting. Description, I'll read it for a moment. This was the center of potential mass murder. The room was disguised as showers and equipped with fake showers, spouts to mislead the victims and prevent them from refusing to enter the room. During a period of 15 to 20 minutes, up to 150 people at a time could be suffocated to death through plastic acid, poison gas, or cyclone B. The catchword here is potential mass murder. So let me just maybe walk out of this and then we can kind of discuss this for a moment. Just remember potential mass murder. Let me just, if I 
exit now the building on the, so to speak, on the outer left side. So one of the things that's really this day controversial, and I think you can see this, is in most other places that I've come across here on the Dachau uh, Memorial Space, there's very specific mentioning of the numbers of people who died, who died when, and so on and so forth. Here we're looking now at the gas chamber, and it says it was for potential mass murder. And so one of the questions that remains to this day, and has been discussed quite controversially, is whether this gas chamber was actually ever operational or not. If you look at the memorial's website, or if you look Google Dachau, then you will more likely constantly come across the fact that this gas chamber was built in 1942, but that often it's then said and repeated verbatim almost from one place to another that there's no evidence that it was actually ever used. The question is if it was never used or not, but you know what is possibly at stake here or not. This was something that was vigorously debated in the 1960s in Germany, and the idea that there would have been a gas chamber in one of the camps in Germany, this was a big issue. Because obviously at this point, it was widely known and accepted that the camps in the East served as gas chambers, but there was still this held assumption that gas chambers had not been used in the camps, quote-unquote, in Germany. And so in many ways, there's this ongoing kind of debate, therefore, about it, that on the one side, the website mentions the construction of it, um, dismisses it, however, that it was not used. And here, the actual site, though, seems to be very specific. And the inscription then details what this could have done, but it's all without mentioning whether it ever did that or not. What I find interesting is just the simple evidence of the building. And that's why I spent a little bit of time on it. So I said the building is a big rectangular that essentially, so to speak, served from both ends. It has in the middle the crematorium. From the right end people, our bodies would have been brought in um, that were assembled and then moved into the crematoriums. Whereas on the left side, all the way to the outside, people would have been brought in, first of all, put through um, what looked like a disinfection room, then a space where they would have had to undress, and then they would have had to go into the gas chamber that then moves you again over directly into the neighboring room where the crematoriums are. So whether used or not, what's clear, I think, from this way it's lined out, that it's really integrated into the overall structure. It's not a late add-on. It's not, you know, on the outside or something like that. It's really built into this overall structure. I find that really interesting that to this day, it seems as if one remains a little unsorted as to what this actually is and how it may have been used or not. But suffice it to say that by the evidence, physical evidence that exists here, it's a chamber that was integrated into a larger construction of a building that served the killing and the burning eventually of corpses. So that's why, you know, Katie, I think this is, a, like I was trying to say earlier, a particular gruesome but also to this day, a really, really interesting space because it also speaks to the kind of complicated forms of memory that, you know, without you know, engaging any kind of questions about denial, um, there's still a reluctance, for example, to think about the possibility that gas chambers actually existed in camps, quote-unquote, on German soil. 
So what do you think about that, Katie? Well, it's very emotionally moving to hear you walk through that space and to hear the audio change as you're in there. And also to think about a building that's constructed for the purpose of industrialized death. It's a conveyor belt and that you don't enter there alive and leave alive, essentially. And it's something that we tend to associate most often with the death camps in the East and then eventually also with Auschwitz. But here on a smaller scale, it's this red brick building with a chimney, which is very purposely designed to fulfill exactly that role that you just mentioned. It's a conveyor belt to either discard of bodies or to kill people on a larger scale. And considering that outside here was also uh, where the mass shootings took place, this was the major killing site, in other words. But purposely, I think, just placed outside of the perimeter of the big rectangular. But then also, interestingly enough, not very far away, so not really that it would have been totally hidden or unknown, you know, what could have occurred here, but just slightly removed so that there would have been fear of the known as well as the fear of the unknown, both mixed together, I think. I'm also struck by this sort of historical debate that you're describing and the reality that there were plenty of atrocities happening, things to be ashamed of as a, a group, especially those living around it or uh, Nazi citizens, but that the gas chamber is the line to say, no, this, this didn't happen here, other places, but not here. It seems a little bit like a silly line to draw. Well, no, yeah, no, it, it, no, absolutely. That that's though. I think it also resonates though because there's a certain symbolism. Yeah. That very thing, word that you just used, this kind of conveyor belt of of mass killings, that kind of speaks to the idea of the Holocaust as this mass industrialized form of killing, and I think something that on a larger scale has been obviously accepted, but the idea that it actually happened, so to speak, right in front of your nose, here just 25 minutes of a train ride away from Munich, that I think is still harder to accept than the idea that it happened far away in a country outside of Germany. So I think therefore it has a certain symbolic resonance. I find it quite perplexing that this very centerpiece of this killing site that we just walked through still is such an issue of debate that seems to suggest that we don't quite know with any great deal of certainty what has happened, so to speak, on its left left side of the building. Many of the guards who were trained here ended up serving in the east. So there doesn't seem to be an, you know, a very obvious reason why there would have been a reluctance to utilize the existing gas chamber here. Or at least that's you know how I would look at it. And if this is the training space where they invented so many other forms of camp management and surveillance, why would they not also have used this as sort of a training ground? Yeah, very, very well put. You know, the, it's interesting, these memorial sites like this Dachau one, um, there are memorial spaces, there are sites of memory, but there are also very clearly places of research. And Dachau all along has had a very steady production of scholarship about it from the immediate aftermath of 45 also because various of the displaced person camps uh, were created just surrounding really Dachau and, and were located not far from here so that for survivors it was also easy 
so to speak, to, to come here and to kind of get a sense early on of what had transpired here. The other last part, and we didn't talk much about that, but that Dachau is also really famous for, we most often, when it comes to the end of the war and the Holocaust, think about the Nuremberg trial, the big you know, trial that established you know, the kind of idea of justice after all of this. But what we often forget is that even prior to it and alongside with it, the Allies conducted also various other trials, trials often associated with particular camps. And so there was a very famous Dachau trial from 45 that stretched on for several years that resulted swift judgments for the perpetrators. And so that forms also part of the special exhibit here that kind of thinks again about the perpetrators and their guilt and responsibility. I'm thinking about some of these historic maps of the area and the size of the prisoner campsite of Dachau compared to the SS training camp size. And then looking at a contemporary map, and it looks like many of the SS barracks, if there are any that are still being used today, of course, they've been repurposed. Well, it has been, you know, largely repurposed immediately, even after the war. The Americans used it initially as an internment camp. It then, you know, was utilized for different purposes. So it's not any longer a dedicated memorial space. But what is interesting, and this speaks again to the significance of Dachau, the SS spaces serve various other important functions and therefore would have brought many other SS members into the vicinity of the camp. And while not all of them served in the camp, they would have been nonetheless integrated into it and would have been fully aware of the things that were going on. So if we want to think about you know, how much this was in plain sight, it was very much in plain sight. I mean, this is, again, to go back, this is in a suburb, suburbia of Munich. This is not far removed and out of sight or anything like that, but very clearly visible and also surrounded by quaint looking houses and, you know, nice trees and all kinds of other things. So it's not that this is like a removed area to which people were deported and then eventually often killed here. And it wasn't necessary for them to hide this kind of industrialized death? No, I don't think so. Because I think in the larger, this maybe goes back to our conversation about the gas chamber. I think in the larger sense of this camp would have been, so to speak, a sanitized version. Because it would have been tied to its origin, which was more to serve as a camp for political opponents. They were imprisoned and tortured, but not necessarily mass killed. And the fact that it changed its nature over the course of time and eventually came also to, to become the destination of various Jewish prisoners, that's usually not the first thing that gets often associated with Dachau. That idea is so powerfully associated with other bigger, more significant camps that it's not necessarily the thing that people think about when they think about Dachau. Thanks so much, Dr. Romer, for taking us around Dachau and being our tour guide, bringing your expertise and your historical understanding and, and sharing that with us. Thank you so much for having me, Katie, as always. It was my pleasure and happy to have you here on my tour with me and to kind of quite literally show you a little bit around and give you a little bit of a different kind of sense of how a site itself also in its own ways allows us maybe to learn something that otherwise 
It's harder for us sometimes to fathom. This podcast is hosted by a team of dedicated faculty and research assistants at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. You can learn more about our work and find upcoming events at our website, www.ackerman.utdallas.edu.